Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 134, The Power of Northumbria. As you know, this show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jim, William, and Mark for contributing already. And this week, members have access to a new episode on the growing complexity of Anglo-Saxon life. And life is certainly getting more complex. There's a lot more to these people than many of us assume. And the more we look into them, the more questions are raised. So you should definitely download it and check it out. Now, we've discussed what was going on north of the Wall and what King Wolf Hera of Mercia's early life and rise to power looked like. And of course, we were already introduced to King Egfrith of Northumbria back when he was a hostage held by Queen Chinawiza of Mercia. You know, back at the Battle of the Windwade, where King Oswiu defeated King Penda. We are also familiar with the religious situation that Britannia had found itself in due to the conflict between the Celtic and Roman churches, and also of the shifting culture on the island as Christianity and Anglo-Saxon culture really became dominant in the East. So we have a pretty good sense of where all these people are coming from, and that's a really good thing because the next couple episodes are going to have a ton of moving parts, a lot of drama, and they're going to be a couple of those stereotypical BHP episodes that touch upon a lot of the things that we've been talking about over the last season or so. Once you go deep enough into the story, it all starts to connect. So I'm really excited about this two-parter, but the information will also be coming at you fast and furious, so you might want to re-listen to these. All right, let's get on with the show. And things really start getting going on March 15th, of 670, with, of course, the death of King Oswiu of Northumbria and the ascension of his son, King Egfrith, who might actually have reigned as over-king of Northumbria with his brother Aelfwina serving as the sub-king over Deira. Now, Oswiu was such a prominent figure in Anglo-Saxon life that it seems rather natural that even his death would lead to a cascading series of events that would change the course of history. So let's pick up with Oswiu's death. I don't know what Egfrith's relationship with his father was. Given what a brutal and terrifying king Oswiu could be, it makes me wonder how close he could have been with his own children. Especially since it didn't appear to face the northern king when Egfrith was taken hostage. Not to mention the fact that Oswiu did kill quite a few family members, so perhaps their relationship was a bit tense. But whatever the case it was probably still a bit of a shock when Oswiu died. And if processing his father's death and the subsequent massive change in responsibilities that Egfrith's ascension carried with it wasn't bad enough, we're also told that on that same year, Egfrith's wife, Aethelthrith, a princess of East Anglia, had chosen to enter a nunnery. Sorry your dad's dead, but I'm going to go and join this nunnery. You cool with that? And part of her reasoning was that she wanted to preserve her virginity. Yeah, preserve it. Now, we're told that Aethelthrith was a good deal older than Egfrith, so maybe she just wasn't keen on the idea of cradle-snatching. But there's another interesting wrinkle to this. Egfrith was not Aethelthrith's first husband. He was her second. 
This was perhaps not the most well thought out of arranged marriages. And as Barbara York points out, one of the least successful royal marriages in recorded history. No kidding, right? Anyway, so she had enough of married life and wanted to join a nunnery. But why choose that moment? Why choose right after his father had died? Well, you might remember that the marriage was imposed upon the royal couple by King Oswiu himself. And Oswiu was not a man to refuse, especially if you were family. He was basically a serial killer who targeted anyone on his family tree. So yeah, who cares if they weren't in love? And who cares if they didn't want to be together? Out of sheer self-preservation, they probably just kept that under wraps. But now, Oswiu was dead. And so at last, Ethelthrith was safe to leave the marriage. And because divorce wasn't really an option, the only way to pull that off was to enter a nunnery. Now, kings have a number of responsibilities. I'm sure we already knew that. But one was chief among them. The duty to have kids. And part of that whole cloister thing was a rule against sex. So Egfrith's chances of having an heir were now almost nil. And as salt in the wound, it was Bishop Wilfred who had personally given Aethelthrith the veil which marked her retirement to the cloister. Nice one, Wilfred. You have just cock-blocked one of the most powerful kings in England. I'm sure that's going to go really well. Now, do you remember Wilfred? He was the abbot who argued at the Synod of Whitby and ended up becoming a bishop, though that climb to power was probably also helped by the fact that he grew up in Oswiu's court and was favored by the queen. You know, Bishop Wilfred. Well, he wasn't very well liked by King Oswiu, and my guess is that he wasn't making any friends with King Egfrith either. But marital issues of kings aside, let's get back to Oswiu. He really had left quite a legacy. Based upon the record, it seems like he went as far as bringing the ancient kingdom of Fortriu, the kingdom between the Fourth and the Tay, under his umbrella. And with it came their subject kingdom of Fib, also known as Fife, which would account for why Cuthbert visited when he was the prior of Melrose. And when you think about how far he had gone and his family connection with the Scots of Dalriada, I do wonder if he had their assistance in fighting against the Picts, or at least an agreement of non-interference as his armies moved through the territory of the Scots. And Dalriada would have had every reason to want Northumbrian support, and also probably held a grudge against the Picts, as King Talorgan of Pictland had defeated Dalriada in 654. And fun fact, Talorgan was Oswiu's nephew. No matter where you go, it seems like there's someone from the line of Ida who's causing trouble. Anyway, the point is, with Pictland causing so many headaches for the Scots of Dalriada, is it hard to imagine that they might have cozied up to their southern neighbors in Northumbria? It's food for thought. And now that Egfrith was on the throne, being on the side of Northumbria was probably still a smart move. I mean, hell, he might have been the first Anglo-Saxon ruler to have minted silver pennies. This guy was part of the movement to bring coinage back to England. He was powerful. So yeah, it is entirely possible that thanks to the foundation laid down by his father, Egfrith was able to enjoy a certain amount of control over territories north of the Wall without really having to fight for it. But that bloodless control of the Pictish regions by the Northumbrians was about to be shattered in 671. 
We're told that it was in that year that King Egfrith and a sub-king known as Bjornhaith fought against the Picts. What Bjornhaith was a king of isn't known. Based upon where they are fighting, scholars have suggested that he might have been a king of one of the Pictish territories. For example, maybe he was a rival of the overking of Pictland and was seeking to enact some sort of coup. In support of this notion is the fact that the territory of Pictish Fife was likely serving Northumbrian overlords during this period. So could Bjornhaith have been part of their royal dynasty? It's possible. And Kirby asserts that, by virtue of his march north, Egfrith probably also still exercised overlordship over the Scottish kingdom of Dalriada. So yeah, maybe Bjornhaith was a friendly king from north of the Wall. But whatever the case, he apparently had strong ties to Northumbria. And we can be relatively sure of that, because we later hear of Bjornhaith fighting and dying for Egfrith against the Picts. Anyway, we're told that Egfrith and Bjornhaith vanquished the Picts in 671, at what is sometimes referred to as the Battle of the Two Rivers. What the two rivers were isn't known, but interestingly, this event is often referred to as the Pictish Rebellion. And the term rebellion brings up an intriguing possibility. Could this conflict be due to the Pictish reaction to Oswiu's death? As you might remember from the Scott casts, after Oswiu died, the king of Pictland was tossed out of office, and he was thought to have been a puppet king of Northumbria. And then, the Picts put Drest, son of Danuel, in power. So was this a battle in reaction to that shift in Pictish politics? It seems like it might have been, since following this battle, the new king, King Drest, was ejected from his kingdom. And again, this might give us a clue to who Bjornhaith was. Could he have been one of the supporters of the puppet king? I mean, something like that might have lent moral standing to Egfrith's invasion, essentially going north on the pretext of supporting his ally, much like Emperor Claudius had ginned up an excuse to invade Britannia over 600 years earlier. But whatever the case, the Picts were defeated, and their king was driven out. Now, Bjornhaith might have had hopes of being placed upon the throne, but if he did, he would have been sorely disappointed, because Bridey, son of Beli, was placed upon the throne of Pictland. Or, as it was also sometimes known in the records now, Fortriu. Bridey was probably the cousin of Egfrith, and the son of Ainflaed of Deira, who was King Edwin's sister. And for those of you who were paying close attention in the Scott casts, this might surprise you, since royal blood flows from the female line. And Bridey appears to have been the son of a foreign female. So, no royal blood. And perhaps we're seeing the extent of Northumbrian power in the north. It seems like the Picts were basically breaking tradition here. And maybe that's because of how much pressure Northumbria was able to place upon them. Now, while it might have been a bit troubling for the Picts to have Bridey on the throne, it probably wouldn't have been all that much of an issue for Egfrith. I mean, he was a family member, and placing family members on various thrones wasn't exactly out of the question for Northumbrian rulers. After all, we've seen his father, Oswiu, do the same thing. And perhaps the Northumbrians and Bridey were able to ease Pictish concerns of succession by pointing out that Bridey very well might have had a family link to a Pictish king that we've already spoken about. It's thought that he might have been the grandson of Necton the Great. So all in all, despite the issue with his mother, perhaps the Picts felt his claim was strong enough. 
or maybe they just really didn't want to fight the Northumbrians anymore. Meanwhile, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that on that same year, 671, there was, quote, great destruction among the fowls, end quote. Well, thanks for pointing that out, scribes. Don't bother giving us detailed accounts of lineages, battles, politics, or I don't know, what life was like. Nah, just boil 671 down to that strange year where a bunch of birds died. You're doing a great job. But that aside, what exactly was going on with the bird population at this point? It's clear that the chroniclers felt this was important. Maybe as a sign, or maybe as a way to track the state of their environment. But whatever the case, what the hell happened to the birds in 671? But weird avian issues aside, Egfrith was probably still feeling pretty triumphant after his victory over the Picts. But he had also seen how close he could have come to death. And so my guess is, he started to realize that he had an important need. He needed offspring. Stat. Sure, he was apparently okay with Queen Aethelthrith wanting to stay a virgin at first, but it looks like after that battle, his views had changed. Because the following year, in 672, he decided he wanted kids. But what to do? His wife was cloistered. Well, Bishop Wilfred was the most powerful man of the cloth in the north. So why not get him to convince the queen to allow the king to consummate their marriage? Well, it looks like Wilfred wasn't too keen on that idea. So we're told that Egfrith tried to bribe him. And that didn't work out well either. Alright, plan B. He had warbands. So why not use them? And we're told that Egfrith tried to take the cloister by force. But Aethelthrith, who apparently was really not into Egfrith, slipped out along with two companions and fled back to Eli, where she founded a double monastery that following year. Now let's break this down. What we have here is a story of a political marriage that was clearly not very happy. And a king who wanted children, but because the church had outlawed concubinage and polygamy, he apparently now thought it was completely normal to storm a nunnery by force, presumably fighting off nuns as he did it, in order to force himself upon his likely terrified wife. Charming. Anyway, it didn't work. And Egfrith and his retinue went back empty-handed. Or maybe not empty-handed, but rather unsatisfied. But seriously, Northumbria, what the hell? Meanwhile, in Wessex, at around the same time, so 672 or 673, King Chenwall of Wessex had died. Why? Well, we aren't given details. Sure, the chroniclers could have told us what happened, but they were too busy birdwatching. So we're left to make guesses. And one of the guesses that scholars tend to gravitate towards is that being a king is stressful at the best of times. But don't forget what we've been hearing about from the lives of Kings Penda and Wolf Hera of Mercia. Not only were they frighteningly successful in military matters, but they also have been quite effective in forming alliances through marriage and even forming southern hegemonies. So being a king of Wessex at a time when Mercia was growing in power, especially when it was also gobbling up outlying West Saxon territories... Well, that was likely to give poor King Chenwal more than a few gray hairs. So perhaps King Chenwal died due to the stress of having King Wolf Hera as his neighbor. But whatever the case, the death was a bit of a problem for the already terribly weakened kingdom of Wessex. And Chenwal's queen, Sixbur, ended up taking the throne, 
Though it looks like the damage was already largely done, because we're told by Bede that the kingdom quickly fragmented and came under control of a variety of underkings. It was going to be quite some time before Wessex would manage to reunite. And after just one year of being ruled by Queen Sixper, there was an internal rebellion in Wessex, and she was forced from the throne and replaced by Aesquina, who, we're told, can trace his lineage back to Cherditch, but exactly what his link to Chenwall and his direct family was isn't clear. Looking at the family tree, Aesquina seems to have had a really attenuated connection to the throne. I mean, really attenuated. We're told in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that he was, quote, the son of Chenfus, Chenfus of Chinfirth, Chinfirth of Cuthgills, Cuthgills of Cholwulf, Cholwulf of Chinnerich, Chinnerich of Cherdich, end quote. That sounds pretty impressive until you realize that many of those names are completely unknown to us, except, of course, of the big ones right at the end. So yeah, things were getting shaken up in the south in 673-ish. And it wasn't just in Wessex. Over in Kent, we're told that King Egbert had died, and Kent was subsequently ruled by Hlothera, along with his nephew, Adric, as a subking. Maybe. But it doesn't look like King Hlothera was all that impressed with Adric, despite the fact that he was the previous king's son. And so it wasn't long before Adric was driven into exile. But let's remind you of who Adric's dad was, because it's been a while since we've talked about Egbert, you know, the previous king of Kent. He was the king of Kent who was implicated in the deaths of his two cousins, who also happened to be claimants to the throne of Kent. And basically, he was the one who seems to have pulled off a Princes in the Tower before King Richard made it cool. Well, he was dead now. And Hlothera, and maybe Adric as well, took control of Kent. And Hlothera is interesting to us because we have his written laws, which give us a rare window into Anglo-Saxon life. And one thing of particular interest to me right now is the fact that in the record, we have hints that Kent might have exercised some degree of control over London. You'll remember that London is a heavily fought-over territory. Anyway, this is all just to keep you abreast of what's going on with these royal shifts in power, and also to remind you of how brutal Anglo-Saxon politics could be. I mean, it's stunning how many fights, exiled kings, and murders had occurred. And not all of it was occurring in Mercia and Northumbria. It seems like everybody was getting into that kind of theme. But let's get back to the epicenter of violent Anglo-Saxon politics, Mercia and Northumbria, since that is where a lot of the drama of this period tends to be centered. Now, Mercia has largely been out of the spotlight in this episode so far. And that's for good reason. Northumbria has been focused upon her northern border, and the southern kingdoms have all been either quiet or have been dealing with internal issues. So Mercia has kind of been left alone. And that's given it the space it's needed. And King Wolf Hera has been busy. As you know, he had spent a lot of time either subjugating kingdoms, forming alliances, or expanding his power base. He was a king in the model of his father. And by 674, it seems like he was ready to utilize what he was building. And we're told that Wolf Hera, who was probably in control of all, or at least most, of the southern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, led a massive multi-kingdom army into Northumbria. And the question leaps to mind, why? Well, could this have been just simple clannishness? 
I mean, there would have been one hell of a blood feud between the lines of Ida and Penda. Just think about it. Egfrit's own father had killed Wolf Hera's father. So, was Wolf Hera looking to avenge his dad? Was it more simple than that? Was he looking to just take up the family business of fighting with Northumbria? Both reasons are entirely possible. And we read of plenty of examples in the Anglo-Saxon era where wars would be fought over a blood debt, where a noble ends up dying in battle, and then the opposing kingdom feels like they're honor-bound to seek out revenge. Of course, that sort of war was only for noble deaths. No one was going to war because Unferth was killed in battle. But yeah, just like Oswiu had every reason to want to fight Penda due to Penda artfully displaying his brother's body on whale stings, perhaps Wolf Hera wanted to march north because Egfrith's father had killed Wolf Hera's father. Not to mention that Egfrith's sister had murdered Wolf Hera's brother. Man, that family was... Well, let's put it this way. They weren't making any friends in Mercia. Anyway, so a good old-fashioned feud was certainly a possibility. But don't forget the cause of war that always seems to creep up between Mercia and Northumbria. Namely, the kingdom of Lindsay. Now, Lindsay doesn't appear too much in the record. And I would be willing to guess that you might have never even heard of the kingdom of Lindsay until you started listening to this show. But the fact of the matter is that Lindsay was a strategic location. For Game of Thrones fans, think about Lindsay like the sea road marches between Highgarden and Lannisport. It's right in the middle there. So if either house ends up getting that region, they're right on their enemy's doorstep. So it can end up being heavily fought over. And the only thing that's clear is that the Sea Road marches probably will not be left unaffiliated. Oh yeah, nerd cred. Anyway, it was a bit like that. And as a consequence, many of the major battles between Northumbria and Mercia were fought either on the border of Lindsay or on the roads leading to Lindsay. And interestingly, they actually generally did not fight in Lindsay, which meant that the kingdom was spared the rather brutal reality of having foreign armies fighting in their territory, and all the looting, foraging, and general mayhem that can come with it. And maybe they did this because they wanted to curry favor with that crucial border kingdom. And that was probably wise, since control of the kingdom would swing back and forth depending on how the battles went. So perhaps, like their predecessors, Egfrith and Wolf Hera were simply fighting over who controlled Lindsay. And I can't help but wonder how the nominally ruling class of Lindsay felt about this. They were just basically pawns here. Anyway, so in 674, the two armies met. And much like his father, Wolf Hera was at the head of an enormous multi-kingdom army. We aren't given numbers, so we don't know exactly how his army matched up with Egfrit's. But based upon the fact he was drawing from most, if not all, of the southern kingdoms, his army probably dwarfed Egfrit's. However, Egfrith, like his father, was a descendant of Ida and Aethelfrith. And so the battle played out exactly how you would imagine. With the Northumbrians triumphant on the field of battle and Northumbria annexing the kingdom of Lindsay, and Wolf Hera being forced to pay tribute to Northumbria. And it's also possible that King Egfrith might have been recognized, at least briefly, as the overlord of Mercia, just like his father had been. Now, you might want some more detail on this battle, since it does seem pretty crucial. And frankly, I would too. 
However, the scribes were remarkably Spartan on their account of this fight. Quite possibly because they were out birdwatching. Seriously, guys, you're doing a bang-up job there. So, pretty much all we know is that Wolf Hera lost. And as he led his men back home, I wonder what was going through his mind. I mean, in a single battle, all of his careful planning had collapsed. And this was the second time that Northumbria had broken the Midland Kingdom, right when it seemed to be on the cusp of acquiring overlordship over all of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. He very nearly was the first king of England. And now the power and control that he had acquired over the South had been terribly weakened. It must have been heartbreaking. And he had to have known that following that battle, Mercia was in sharp decline. And Northumbria was once again ascendant. But the fight wasn't over. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And we're on pretty much all forms of social media at this point. And right now, Tumblr is turning out to be a ton of fun. So you should go check it out. And you can find links to all of that stuff at the British History Podcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.